0: Chapter Seventeen of Cordelia the Magnificent. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Kevin Manley. Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott. Chapter Seventeen Readjusted Plans. Cordelia's gasping astonishment at the parting words of the smilingly polite and ironical Mitchell was swiftly transmuted by the chemistry of her nature into flaming indignation. She made no attempt to search out the implications and applications of his cryptic remark about blackmail. She was too thoroughly angered. Mitchell might be something better than the average butler. Indeed he was. Undoubtedly he was clever, and undoubtedly he did possess ability and power far above mere cleverness. But in his instincts, he was a bore, a clown who delighted in his clowning, altogether too presumptuous. Her hot resentment against Mitchell impelled her to make immediate use of the letter he had induced Gladys to write, and with it in her pocket she went down to the broad piazza. In the chattering crowd she saw Mitchell, with his deft impersonal precision, gathering the empty glasses of those who had felt the need of a pick me up to prime them for a new day. And there was Gladys, with high-pitched, nervous laugh, at the end of some story she was telling Mr. Franklin and Jerry Plimpton. Prompted by her resentment, her words intended particularly for Mitchell, and incidentally for Gladys, Cordelia said to Jerry, "'I'm driving into the village to mail a letter, Jerry. Want to ride with me?' "'Glad to,' he answered. She did not look to see the effect of her words on Mitchell and Gladys. On the run into the village her spirits were wildly high if Jerry only knew that she was carrying a letter to him and such a letter, but Jerry would never know of her connection with that letter. Later in the day, she somehow did not quite feel so comfortable over the letter, but she forced these thoughts from her mind. That was the only way to dispose of disturbing matters, not to think of them. The party danced and drank all that Sunday afternoon and evening, Diplomacy no longer had need to determine Cordelia's policy, and Jerry was her most frequent partner, with Mr. Franklin next. The latter improved upon the impression he had made the previous day. Not only was he an adept and entertaining partner at dancing, but he was skillful and considerate at the bridge tables. What Jackie Thorndyke said to Cordelia was said in substance by half a dozen women who sought her out. "'Cordy old girl, I think your Mr. Franklin is a regular find. "'I've invited him out, and he's promised to come.' "'When Mr. Franklin motored into town that midnight, "'it was with the triumphant feeling "'that he had never spent 36 hours to better advantage. "'He was certainly on his way up, thanks to Cordelia Marlowe, "'and with the cards he held "'and the care with which he intended playing them, "'there was nothing which now could stop him.' The following morning Cordelia stood beside her roadster saying goodbye. Her trunks had already been called for by a Thorndike chauffeur, and there was only her traveling case for the impeccable Mitchell to set down in front of the extra seat. A few of the other guests had not yet gone, and since there was an audience, Gladius was effusively affectionate at the parting, but Cordelia knew that in Gladys' heart the urgent invitation to return soon was a malediction, and that the kiss was a bite. Esther was soberly gracious. Of them all, little Francois was most demonstrative. His arms around her neck held her tight, and he kissed her again and again, saying over and over, Please come back, Mother Cordelia, please! The spontaneous, simple affection of the little boy stirred her profoundly. There had been little of such direct, free-flowing love in her life, and she held him close in response, and promised and an inner voice remarked that Mitchell must have been right about the boy's father. Whatever the father's flaws, he must have been a simple, likable man, for certainly Francois derived none of his unspoiled simplicity from Gladys. As for Mitchell, till the last he was the efficient, emotionless butler, who could never possibly have had those two scenes with her in her room, nor that session in the burned-out clearing among the scrub pines, Thus Cordelia rode away from rolling meadows, relieved to be going, and yet with a trace of inexplicable reluctance, believing that her mission there and all pertaining to it were for her at an end, and that she was about to turn a fresh and more engrossing page, never dreaming in her young sureness of herself that life does not snip into the thread of experience at one's will her mind holding no hint that all the important things which were about to develop in her career were to be the direct consequences of those experiences at Rolling Meadows and of these unanalyzed ingredients which were in that human container labeled Cordelia Marlowe. During the days which followed, Cordelia's life swept onward in what she excitedly and exultantly felt was the direction of her dreams her greatest triumphs. The important events were few, yet her days all seemed crowded. She had never felt more satisfied with herself, never more sure of herself, never more confident of the future. The horrible stress and consequent maneuvering of her poverty were now removed, thanks to that unexpected bonus from Mr. Franklin, whose second check had come on Tuesday morning, as he had promised. She had the exhilarating satisfaction of achievement, of abilities successfully exercised. She had certainly justified Mr. Franklin's belief in her, and she felt that, in due time, when she herself was quite ready, Jerry Plimpton would swing in her direction, now that Gladys was most properly removed as a counter-attraction. Of the undramatic but engrossing events of these days, Nothing gave Cordelia more acute satisfaction than the use of the $5,000 which lay for a day or two in her surprised bank account. For, to persons unaccustomed to cash, cash is for a brief period quite the most thrilling thing in the world. She sent checks upon accounts to all her creditors. An hour of this scribbling and her bank balance had swiftly receded to a little over $100, which was much above her average. She hoped her mother would not for a time at least, learn of this sudden liquidation of her debts. She did not see just how she could render a plausible explanation to her mother of her possession of a sum unprecedented in the family history. She had been pinched all season by the scantiness of her wardrobe, had had to rack her brain, and had been driven to most difficult makeshifts and expedients in order to maintain the proper show of charming and ever-fresh plentitude. But now, in company with Jackie, who was tautly restless these days, and was eager for anything that would keep her forever moving, she ran into town on several consecutive days, and was waited upon by her former creditors, whose faces the magic of her checks had rearranged into alert and obliging smiles. And presently, her old debts were replaced with new debts, a trifle larger. But she had clothes, and she had need of clothes. She had need of everything that would make her stand out in attraction above all other women, for she was now seeing a great deal of Jerry. Cordelia had luncheon or tea with Jerry about every day, and several nights a week he ran out to Jackie's place. He seemed to be able to make unlimited time to see her. She wondered how he had taken Gladys' letter announcing the secret engagement. She was prepared to act thoroughly surprised in case he mentioned the news but not so much as by a hint did he refer to Gladys's note. One day at luncheon, she and Jackie and Jerry were joined by Kyle Brandon, who wished to discuss Cordelia's part in the French pageant. That magician of the motion picture had never known the English language to hang back bashful and awkward and indigent in his mouth, and this day it poured forth in its most easy and confident affluence. His plans were now taking definite shape. Several of the best men on his staff were going to assist with the details. The pageant was going to be a wonder. Never had there been anything like it attempted before for social or philanthropic purposes. Particularly did he dwell upon Cordelia's part, making rapid sketches on the back of luncheon cards of her in this pose and that costume. Let him advise her upon all the costumes. Better still, leave the costumes almost entirely to him he'd guarantee an effect never before approached by a figure in a non-professional exhibition. And every pose, every gesture, would be a picture. In fact, an art photograph. In fact, he'd have his very best stillman and his very best cameraman on hand to get these matchless photographs by the score, by the thousand feet. And all the illustrated Sunday papers would grab her portraits, and millions of people would see her when the newsreels flashed upon the silver screen. Superb. Magnificent. Cordelia laughingly begged to be excused from such publicity, but she perceived that Jerry was impressed and pleased. The Plimptons might be particular about their women, but in all the generations there had not been a male Plimpton who had not liked to have the public admire the woman he admired. At home that night, Jackie said, From the way Jerry's eyeing you these days, he's soon going to be asking you what size engagement ring you usually wear, if he has not already asked you. You're just dreaming, Jackie, Cordelia laughed. Jerry just likes to play around. I'll bet you any amount up to fifty cents that Jerry asked you inside of three months. And you'll be a fool if you don't say yes and say it quick, Jackie sighed grimly. If you people do decide to have a try at it, Here's hoping you have better luck than some people I know. Frequently during these days in town, Cordelia was seeing Mr. Franklin, and now and again she met him at evening parties at various country houses. After every meeting, her liking for him was a little further advanced. At one of the first of these conferences, Franklin got from Cordelia those facts he had commissioned her to get relative to the domestic affairs of Jackie and Murray Thorndyke. Jackie and Murray were quite open about their breach— Murray's case was unusual, only in being so extremely usual. His enamorada was the premier danseuse of a popular summer show. He had bought her jewels, a foreign car, and was understood to be paying the rent for her smart summer cottage out near Rye. All this Jackie knew. As for Jackie, in her need for something to fill her time, she was seeing a lot of one Nicholas Drexel, more commonly known as Nicky who shot across from the Hamptons almost nightly in his racing car. Just how far intimacy had progressed between Jackie and Nicky, Cordelia could not tell, but Murray knew all there was to be known, and had as yet said nothing about buying a gun and getting it into action. Jackie and Murray had frequently talked with each other about divorce, but neither wished to marry another person, so they were just letting matters run along as they were. Mr. Franklin pondered over this information carefully, Certainly, here might be scandal enough, but for his purposes, it had this fatal defect. No one was interested in trying to conceal it. In the entire field of financial possibilities, there is nothing less profitable than a big scandal which no one has the decency to wish to hide. Mr. Franklin thought of shifting Cordelia into some situation which might prove financially more promising, but this he vetoed for the present. The social connections he was establishing through Cordelia's being where she was were too valuable an asset to risk by manipulating her into a situation that might be socially less fortunate. Besides, more and more, his various plans for Cordelia were becoming subordinated to the great and consuming plan of joining their powers and personalities with a wedding ring. And besides, there was the business side of Gladys's secret needing all the attention, and the very shrewdest attention, that he could give it. Yes, every consideration advised him to keep Cordelia on at Jackie's, and to allay any scruples she might have about accepting money, if she seemed to be giving no service in return, he assured her that the information she was gathering about the Thorndykes was of the greatest value to him, and directed her to go on collecting facts which would help him remedy the deplorable situation of her friends. Having eliminated Cordelia as his agent in Gladys' affairs, Franklin's mind had turned to Mitchell as his most likely instrument for the furtherance of his interests. Mitchell was already collecting tribute from Gladys. If he could only gain some hold upon Mitchell, then he could make Mitchell greatly increase the amount of his levy, make Mitchell turn the entire payments over to him, and he, Franklin, would in no wise appear directly in the matter. Since Mitchell was admittedly blackmailing. Franklin reasoned that Mitchell was an experienced criminal. Very likely Mitchell had a criminal record which he wished to conceal. Possibly even the police were now searching for him in connection with some unpenanced crime. Either hypothesis supplied a very adequate motive for his hiding his identity in the guise of a servant. To get a clever criminal in your power and make him do your work for you, what more simple, more admirable? Franklin realized that he had to handle this Mitchell with very great care, for Mitchell was no ordinary person. Also, he had to be most careful on Cordelia's account. He must not involve Cordelia, betray her. She who was to be his wife must be kept clear of all admitted complications. About a week after Cordelia's departure from Rolling Meadows, Franklin motored out and had tea with Gladys, who had invited him to come whenever he could. He made himself extremely agreeable to her and drove back leaving behind with Gladys a highly increased opinion of himself. And he carried away with him a saucer on which were imprints of Mitchell's thumb and fingers. This saucer he sent to the police department with the request that the fingerprints be developed and that he be informed of the identity and record of the person whose finger story had thus been captured. He waited confidently and hopefully But the police department report was disappointing. The owner of those fingers had no police record, nor was he wanted as a suspect in connection with any crime. This made Mitchell more difficult, but it did not make him impossible. He was undoubtedly a criminal, and as such was amenable to skillful handling. The only question was how to handle him. Through playing upon his cupidity, undoubtedly that was the way. Two days after the unfavorable police report upon the fingerprints, Mitchell was in Franklin's office in response to a skillfully worded letter asking him to call. Franklin was cool, pleasant, direct. Visiting at Rolling Meadows, I was much struck by your obvious superiority to your position. He said, "I am sure that you have had ambitions and training for something much better. I am right in that conjecture." Yes. Very good. Now, I can use an intelligent man of your type, and it occurred to me that I might offer you something that you might consider an improvement upon your present situation. I fear I could not suit you, Mr. Franklin, for none of my training has been along legal lines. Such training is not at all necessary for what I had in mind. You can do the work. Of this I have convinced myself, and you will find it easy. I think that the only serious point he hesitated for emphasis' sake, then said with bland, quiet significance, "'Is whether I can suit you in the matter of terms?' "'Terms,' queried Mitchell. "'What terms did you think of offering?' Franklin had now reached the moment for what he considered the showdown. He had decided that the only way to handle Mitchell, to work through him, was to offer him more than he was now clearing. Not offer it too bluntly, of course.' at least not at first. The man was a crook. He would understand a hint. The two men sat gazing eye to eye. There was expression in neither face. My terms, said Franklin, steadily choosing his words so that their meaning could not possibly be mistaken. Of course, I do not know what you are now clearing from salary, gratuities, and all other sources. But if you will come in with me, I will guarantee to double your present receipts. Double them, whatever the source, whatever the amount. He paused an instant to let this gather its full effect, then added his weightiest argument. And do not overlook this further consideration, the security one feels in handling one's affairs through a reputable and skillful legal firm. He believed he could not have made his offer more plainly. Mitchell did not at once reply. His face retained its direct "'thoughtful but otherwise expressionless look. "'Then it showed apologetic regret. "'You have been most kind, Mr. Franklin,' he said. "'But I have no personal ability "'and no connection of any kind "'which could possibly warrant me "'in accepting so generous an offer.' "'Then you did not accept. "'No, it would not be fair to you. "'At least there has been no harm "'in making you the proposal.' Quite the contrary. I thank you for the compliment. Mitchell rose, and with courteous poker faces, the two men parted. Franklin was certain that the other had understood him perfectly, was more certain than before that Mitchell was a clever criminal, even cleverer and bolder than he had believed. Mitchell preferred to play a lone hand, that was the explanation, and he believed he could play it successfully, no matter who might be sitting in the game. Yes. The man certainly had nerve. Well, he'd be eternally on his guard against this Mitchell. End of chapter 17